himself, um, an excellent production of the Persians, I should say. Um, tonight, um, we are going to have the privilege of hearing um, a talk by an expert on the Persian Empire. Um, and to introduce him and to give some actual show of expertise to this, um, I'm going to give you to Joe Manning. Follow the crowd. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Chris. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I apologize for the technology. It happens every single time. We try to be fancy with the PowerPoint. No matter where we go in the world, it's not going to cooperate. Um, thank you for your patience. I'm afraid this is how it's going to look. Uh, so less pretty than it, uh, it uh, could be, but um, good enough, I think. Um, ladies and gentlemen, dear guests, dear colleagues, it's a great pleasure to introduce tonight's lecturer, the fourth Rostovsev lecture, uh, Pierre Briand. And before I do that, I want to give a special warm thanks to Linda Dickey Saucier in the Department of Classics for helping so much with the administration behind uh, supporting Pierre Briand's visit to us uh, tonight and tomorrow. We've had three wonderful lectures so far in this series, the first on the Roman Empire, the second on the meaning of ancient Mediterranean history in a global historical context. You can fix that? Okay, we're just gonna be, we're gonna be low tech tonight, uh, I'm afraid. Um, last year's on economic theory and modeling and how ancient history contributes there. And now this year on historiography of the Hellenistic world and really the two seminal scholars who have shaped the study of Hellenistic history in the last nearly century or so. And I think there could be no better choice for this topic than our lecturer tonight. Pierre Briand is a doyen of Achaemenid history as well as a leading scholar of Alexander the Great. His two classic accounts of Alexander, I have them here in nice English translations, have been recently made available in English as well as many other languages, in fact, dozens of languages. He's one of the ancient historians who's read in many multiple languages all over the world, um, as they should be. And in fact, these are my two favorite planets in a whole galaxy of books on uh, Alexander uh, the Great and his empire. Uh, Pierre Briand studied in Poitiers, taught in Montpellier and Tours, and eventually became professor in Toulouse, where he taught for very many years. In 1999, he was elevated 
and I think elevated is the right uh, verb there, uh, to a post in the Collège de France, where he holds the chair in the history and civilization of the Achaemenid world and of the empire of Alexander the Great. Also in 1999, he received a Doctor of Humane Letters degree honoris causa from the University of Chicago. He is a corresponding member of the Deutsches Archaeologische Institute and of the British Academy, and a founder of Achaemenet.com, a pioneering website on the history and material culture of the Achaemenid Empire. Pierre Briand is the author of more than 150 scholarly articles, 10 monographs, and many more collaborative volumes in Achaemenid history and the ancient economy, to name just two subjects in which he has done much groundbreaking work. His magnum opus, at least at this point, is his history of the Persian Empire. I would have brought it with me uh, tonight to hold up, but it's far too big and far too heavy to, to do that. Uh, it truly is a breathtaking and astonishing work, which has required reading, and in fact required rereading, for all ancient historians. In the last several years, Pierre has moved somewhat, although not entirely away from the Persian Empire directly, to broader considerations in the historiography and the later reception of the Persian Empire and of Alexander the Great. Much work in the last couple of years has been devoted especially to the European Enlightenment and his new book, which I'm really looking forward to, Alexandre des Lumières, will appear in 2012 under the Gallimard uh, imprint. Ladies and gentlemen, I am deeply honored to give you this year's Michael Ivanovich Rostovsev lecture on, indeed, Rostovsev's birthday. I believe it is tonight. Professor Pierre Briand. Thank you very much. I would like firstly to say how much honored I feel with the invitation, at least for two reasons. My first, my long-lasting admiration for the work of Michael Rosozef and the exceptional prestige of Yale in the academic world. It is also my first visit to Yale. For all these reasons, I would like to express my warmest thanks to the Department of Classics for this invitation in the honor of a living memory of Rostodzev. My thanks also to my friend, Matt Stolper, who has translated my French text in his typically elegant English, that I will now deliver in my really poor pronunciation of Franco-English. Sorry for that. My thanks also to Albert Baumgartner, and to Alexis Zolberg, who have responded so kindly to my questions. When I was invited by the Department of Classic to deliver the fourth orthodox lecture, I meditated for a while on the topics which would be linked to the very lively orthodox studies and to my own current research on the historiography of Alexander the Great from the 18th to the 21st century. As I explained it in my inaugural lecture, delivered at the College of France in March 2000, 
I have been deeply influenced by also the social and economic history of the Hellenistic world and by his previous studies published since the last decade of the 19th century. It is the reason why, in a paper delivered at one of the numerous Rotsozef conferences, this one was held in Paris in 2000, I tackled with the main ideas of Rotsozef concerning the issue of change and continuity between the Achaemenid and the Hellenistic world. Rostozev was already very present in my previous treatment of the subject in 1972 and 1979. On the other hand, seven years ago or so, I had the opportunity to revisit Elias Bickerman's Hellenistic studies through a paper he published during his first years of professional residency in the US, more precisely in 1944-45. He was then the first historian to consider that the main thesis of Drogzen on Alexander the Great had been announced or foreshadowed by thinkers of the Enlightenment, particularly by Voltaire. So I was tempted to bring the two scholars together. I mean Rostozev and Bikerman. Within a reflection which will be biographical and historiographical at the same time. Moreover, the invitation from Yale coincided with the first biographical essay on Bickerman, published by Albert Baumgartner. Yes, no. Anyway, in 2010. Therefore, my talk is intended to make a connection between Michael Rosozef and Elias Bekerman. Many reasons militate in favor of bringing them together. Both were of Russian origin, both were born in the Ukraine about 30 years apart. The first, Rosozef, was born in Kiev in 1870. The other, Bekerman, was born at Kitchenev in 1897. Their destinies were intertwined throughout the greater part of their professional lives. In Russia, to begin with, Vikerman was Rostozev's student at the University of St. Petersburg, shortly before the revolution of 1917. Then Rostozev left Russia at the end of June 1918, but without giving up hope of returning to his homeland. After spending some time in England and France, he reluctantly decided to make a place for himself in the United States at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Five years later, he accepted a professorship at Yale, a post he held until he retired in 1944 and he died in October 1952. As for Bekerman, he remained in Russia until 1921, when he, when he immigrated to Berlin. He completed there his doctorate and his habilitation, not without difficulty, becoming a private docent in 1929. Twelve year, years after he arrived in Berlin in 1933, he immigrated again, this time to France, but only seven years later that in 1940, Nazi armies occupied Paris. Bickerman 
reached the United States in 19, 1942, eventually obtained a professorship at Columbia in 1952 and passed away in 1981 in Jerusalem. As a result of their many travels and successive exiles, both Rostozev and Bikerman were polyglot scholars. Both wrote and spoke more or less fluently in Russian, German, French, English, and Italian. The major works of both appeared in these various languages, but only Rostozev had a large number of publications in Russian. Bikerman, I may not, continued to publish in German even after his exile from Germany to France, still publishing his two books on the Maccabees in Berlin, one in 35, the other one in 1937. Throughout these years, Rostozev and Bickerman stayed in contact. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, Rostozev interceded very often with his connection to help Bickerman get an American visa. And, the and the in the United States, they continued to meet and to communicate until Rostozev's death in 1952, the year in which Bickerman took up his post at Columbia. They had, the two had many things in common. To begin with, of course, their common Russian origin and Russian culture. Bekeman always considered himself a connoisseur of the works of Pushkin and their common condition as exiles. But also the focal interest of their scientific work above all the world that came about from the campaigns of Alexander, what has been called the Hellenistic world, in German, Hellenismus, ever since the works of the Prussian historian Johann Gustav Droysen published between 1833 and 1843. Never claimed to be a specialist of Alexander or on Macedonia, but throughout their lives, both contemplated the social, cultural, and economic condition of the world after Alexander. Their common history in the history, their common interest in the history of the Hellenistic world is well illustrated by the appearance, only three years apart, of the two books that remain authoritative works of reference even today. In 1938, Elias Bikerman published his Institution des Seleucides in Paris in French. In 1941, the monumental social and economic history of the Hellenistic world appeared at Oxford under the name of Michael Rosadzeff. The former was published while Bickerman was still working in Paris. The second came out when Rostozev was already at Thiel and Bickerman was looking ahead to a new exile. The two works have numerous points of connection. Indeed, Rostozev was clearly in contact with Bickerman during the last phase of editing, as shown by many explanatory notes in which he thanks Bickerman for his suggestion. On Bickerman's part, although he was certainly in contact with Rostozev, his acknowledgement went to the man who read the manuscript and the proofs, the great epigraphist Louis Robert, 
we had just been elected in the College de France. Nevertheless, without explicit, explicitly citing Rostotzev, the preface to Bickerman's work takes an epistemological position who had been asserted by Rostotzev for decades before. Bickerman wrote, for example, Paucity of documentation prevented me from touching on subjects which would probably seem of greatest interest to readers. But it must be admitted that one cannot speak with any plausibility about forms of Seleucid colonization until the cities or villages of the king of Syria have been excavated. Bikerman was certainly familiar with the excavations conducted at Dura Europos, an Hellenistic and Roman town in Syria that had been, been discovered in 1920 by British soldiers operating around. After an initial mission di directed by the Belgian archaeologist Franz Cumon in 1922-23, the Academy des Inscriptions et Belles in Paris signed an agreement to collaborate with Yale, which allowed Rotsodzev to carry out excavation at the site between 1926-1936-37. He published two books on Dura Europos and its art in 1945 and 1938, and he delivered a lecture on these topics at the Collège de France in 1937. I assume that he met with Bikerman at this occasion. Even if he never published a book as ambitious as the social and economic history of the Hellenistic world, Bickerman shared with Rostotzev a penchant for vast historical vision combined with minute scrutiny of every element of documentation, above all, inscriptions and papyri. Very early on, Rostotzev expressed his desire for grand synthèse. Like he was very early on, he insisted, visionary that he was, on the necessity of relocating the Hellenistic epoch in a Near Eastern context. He forcefully advocated these axiomatic views in a review article published in Russian in the Noshni Historici Journal in 1913. I have already analyzed this paper in a specific article on Rostotzev, thanks to an Italian translation published in 1994 by Aldo Marcon. There, Rostotzev emphasized that the history of the Hellenistic world could not be disconnected from the context of Near Eastern history in its long durée. In his view, an urgent an essential prerequisite was to, quote, to understand the basic organization of the great Persian Empire and, still more important, to achieve a detailed understanding of the particularities of the regime of each of the Persian satrapies, unquote. His analysis extended to intercultural connection. In contrast to Drogzen, Rostosev asserted that Alexander and his successors did not begin the work of fusions. 
It is not coy to speak of a grand creative idea of Alexander, the fusion of Orient and Hellenism, while overlooking the fact that Alexander found fusion already well underway in many regions of his empire. Consequently, the foremost task that falls on those who mean to carry out research on the history of Hellenism must be to study the various regions of the Orient during the period of Persian domination. Again, in contrast to Droysen, Rotsozev dismissed the idea that Alexander was a genius who transformed the world. Alexander, he said, can only be understood if he is located in a historical continuum and if the historian takes into account the condition of the regions of the Near East that he conquered. In other words, Rotsozev was the first to introduce into what is called Hellenistic history the idea of continuity be between the Achaemenid world and the Hellenistic world. It was a concept that he began to, to expound as early as 1906. So there is nothing surprising in the place that the Persian Empire occupied in the general organization of the historical project that came to fruition in 1941 with the social and economic history of the Hellenistic world. This great work was announced as early as 1936-1945 in a still famous article in the American Historical Review entitled The Hellenistic World and Its Economic Development. I suspect that it was partly a response to a not less famous article published by Ulrich Wilken on the same topics in 1921. The text was delivered as a presidential address at the meeting of the American Historical Association at Chattanooga on December 28, 1935. But it was explicitly presented in a footnote as a chapter of the social and economic history of Greece and the Hellenistic monarchies after Alexander in preparation. The text began, as you can see on the screen, with a fascinating remark on the usefulness of confronting the present with the past. Rosadev proposed to seek in the Hellenistic and Roman worlds not only the precedence of modern economic crisis, but also their solutions. On the right. In these days, of unsettled and chaotic conditions of an acute economic crisis which prevails over the civilized world when all sorts of remedies are suggested for healing the wounds and among them under the label of a last word in economic science, some edge-old and meantime tried devices, it is perhaps not inappropriate for a student of ancient economy, uh, ancient economic history to recall to mind the Roman past of Greece and Rome when similar crises were not infrequent and where many devices were tried in the hope of solving them. In his conclusion, he returned to his, this parallel and posed a worried question about the future of the contemporary world. 
we, on our part, have greatly, greatly developed what we inherited from antiquity or independently created, but are we sure that our economic progress will last forever, that it will never be terminated by events brought about not by economy, but by the development of our mentality and our emotions. It is clear that the crisis of 1929, still real and present in 1936, and before the second wave of Great Depression, had not ceased to raise questions and doubts about the rationality of economic decisions. While Rostozev was delivering this speech, Bickerman was in Paris, awaiting the publication of his Institution de Célecide. It would come out two years later, but, later, but the, the preface is actually dated May 1936. Bickerman doesn't treat the economy in his book. References to Rostozev's studies are mostly concentrated in chapter four, devoted to the fiscal institutions of the Seleucid Kingdom. A few years later, Bickerman was to comment much more broadly on Rostozev's thesis in a review article, which I will discuss presently in detail, since, since its interest arises as much from the context in which Bickerman composed it as from the text itself. As I already mentioned, Bickerman had fled Germany in 1943 and taken refuge in France, having asked for help from many colleagues, and not only Rostozev himself, but also Franz Cumont, Jérôme Cacopino, Pierre Jouguet, as well as Edmund Bivan in England, and Leo Westermann, a very well-known American academic who had close ties to Rostozev in the United States. We know of this detail thanks to the recent book by Albert Baumgartner, Elias Bickerman, as an historian of the Jews, 2010. At this period, Bickerman could also count on an American committee that was very active in assisting scholars and professors who were exposed to Nazi persecution. The Emergency Committee in Aid of Displaced Foreign Scholars, working with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation. Thanks to Rotzelzef's many appeals to the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Bickerman obtained financial support that allowed, uh, allowed him to take a post at the Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes in Paris. Part of his salary was paid by the committee. He also received an appointment to the newly created Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, CNRS. Even then, even then, he remained anxious about the future, and for that reason, he asked Rostozev to see if he could find him a position in the, in the United States. The fall of France in June 14, 1940 spurred him to look for a new land of exile. The immigration of French, French intellectuals and others coming from France has been studied in several recent works by American and French scholars. For example, uh, here, 
the, the, the book by Colin Nettelweck, Forever French, or 87, and the other one uh, by Emmanuel Loyer, Paris, à New York. Intellectuel artiste français en exil, 1940-1947. These works are, are centered on eminent figures like Claude Lévi-Strauss, Jacques Maritain, André Breton, and others. The different and successive waves of the German immigration after 1933 has also been carefully studied, for example, in an impressive book published in 1987 by Jean-Michel Palmier. Yeah. And then translated into English in 2006. It is one of the best books I ever read on a very complex, fascinating, and moving history. The part two is entirely devoted to exiles in America, 1939-45, from the Second World War to McCarthyism. Like many other anonyms, Bickerman is absent of his books and of any other studies. As far as I could see, he was not only a non-Frenchman, but a non-German, just a scholar from Russia who had emigrated from Russia to Germany, then to Germany to France, try, trying now to get the permission to exile from Europe to the United States, like so many people who had left Germany after 1933 and 1945. He was what we can call a non-state exile. The basic facts of Bickerman's exile were first gathered from the archives and most carefully laid out by Albert Baumgartner in the work, well, this one, in the work have I uh, already mentioned. The research was an uneasy one since Bickerman had left a will according to which all his personal papers should be destroyed at his death, what it was done. As one knows, from the, from the Emergency Rescue Committee was created in New York in June 1940. Its representative in France was Varian Fry, who had played a decisive role in the very sad story. He set up operations at Marseille in August 1940, equipped with a list of 200 people who needed help. Thanks to this network, Claude Lévi-Strauss, for example, succeeded in getting out of Marseille in 1941 and getting to Brazil in his way to New York. For Bickerman, as for all those we were seeking asylum in the United States, the greatest problem was getting an American visa. Arrangements were long and slow, and Bickerman's personal situation in France was becoming increasingly difficult. He had to leave the zone occupied by the Germans and seek refuge in the zone controlled by the Vichy government in the little spa town of La Bourboule. But no matter where, where he was, his status as a Jew made his position uncertain and dangerous. He was fortunate to have help and very strong support from Rosozef and Westermann. We were in close contact with the president 
of the Rockefeller Foundation. Nevertheless, despite the network that was helping him, Bickerman's request, request took a long time to succeed for the American government has, had promulgated very restrictive immigration regulations. Much information of the subject is to, to be found in a detailed study on the École Libre of a New School for Social Research published in 1998 in Social Research by Alexis Zolberg, who himself held and holds still the title of University in Exile, Professor Emeritus of Political Science of a New School for Social Research. This study can be found on the internet, but it was first published as a booklet, at professor, as Professor Zolberg told me in a personal message. Zolberg refers to the terms propounded by an official of Rockefeller Foundation. The candidate in exile, quote, should possess those outstanding scholarly qualities that will warrant our taking exceptional action to make it possible for him to come to the United States. After receiving letters full of hope, alternating, alternating with messages that brought disappointment, Bickerman was growing desperate. In a letter written in France to Rod Sozef on December 10, 1941, he wrote, quote, there is nothing left for me but to leave for the United States at once, or burst. At long last, an American visa was issued in April, April 42, and a few weeks later, Bickerman and his wife embarked on Marseille for Casablanca and then for Baltimore, where they arrived at the end of June 42. When he arrived, Bickerman took a post at the New School for Social Research, a prestigious institution found in 1919 by a group of Columbia professors we oppose war. With the permission of their university, they founded a new institution that still exists today. The new school welcomed a large number of foreign professors who had been driven out of Europe. In 1943, Alvin Johnson, the founding president of the new school, created a distinct entity within it, the University in Exile, where at first German academics were accommodated and later academics from many other European countries. At the same time, Bickerman was also attached to a brand new institution, the École Libre des Hautes Études, founded by, founded by French and Belgian academics in exile in New York, with the aid of the Rockefeller Foundation, with the permission of the American government and with an official charter from the French government in exile in London under General de Gaulle. This École Libre was affiliated with a new school. Among the founding members are such celebrated names as the historian of art, Henri Faucillon, the philosopher, Jacques Maritain, the Belgian scholar, Henri Grégoire, Claude Lévi-Strauss, and some others. The case of Faucillon is particularly interesting. It was at this time professor of Collège de France and professor at Yale. He is one of his French scholars 
who had been in American universities for a long time, so that before the arrival of the refugees, the network already existed. As emphasized by Colin Nettlebeck, it was particularly true of Yale. There were several French professors and others were invited, invited to give lectures, Maritain, André Breton, and a few others. The recall was inaugurated with great pomp and ceremony on the 14th of February, 1942, in the firing presence of some 2,000 invited guests. A review appeared the next day in the New York Times, which, which congratulated the new school and welcomed the exiled scholars, reminding its readers that when Rome fell, the scholars fled to Constantinople. When Constantinople fell, the scholars returned to Italy. Barbarian rule in various countries at various times has always benefited other countries to which the wise and fruitful were exiled. So in our day, quoted by Zolberg. The Ecole's president, Henri Fossillon, could not de deliver his speech because he was deeply sick. It was delivered on his behalf by Jean Perrin. We can find part of the text in Nettel's book, Nettel, Nettelbeck's book. The journal through which the Ecolib de Hautes Études presented the, its work and itself was founded at the instance of Alvin Johnson, who said, it will be well for the group to consider the launching of a scholarly magazine, literary and political. The first number of its journal, Renaissance, appeared in 1943. And it began with three especially interesting, interesting documents. In the first place, the editors wrote, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt authorized them to publish at the beginning of the first number the following letter dated November 5, dated November 5, 1942, addressed from the White House to Alexander Corrie, Secretary General of the Ecole Libre. It was probably too long for being read uh, at length. I can provide you with a copy. In the, second in the second place, an eulogy by a philosopher, Jacques Maritain, on Henri Foncillon, who was an honorary professor in the École Libre and who had just died at Yale. Finally, an avertissement, not signed, but collective, with extract from it with his lofty patriotic tone indicates the aims and values that the members of the call sought to protect and exemplify. The journal Renaissance is published by a group of academics who came together in New York and founded the Colib de Hautes Études in order to pursue their research and in order to continue to give instruction in French. The main object is to uphold in the intellectual domain whose values for which the United Nations are struggling and for which the French resistance cannot be separated. I mentioned the journal Renaissance, particularly because Bickerman and Rostodzeff 
encountered each other in its pages. In volume two, dated 1944-45, but published in 45, Bickerman published a long review article on the social and economic history of the Hellenistic world, which had appeared in 1941 at the cover page of, Resistance, of Renaissance. I will return presently to this most interesting text. For the moment, I would simply like to mention that in the volume one of Renaissance, Rossozef himself had published an article in French, to be more precise, translated into French by the editorial secretary of the journal. It was entitled L'Orient et la civilisation grecque, Dura Europos sur le Fradvats, Greek Civilization and the Orient, Dura Europos on the Euphrates. It was explicitly meant for a general public. It offers the main conclusions drawn from excavations at the Hellenistic Roman town of Dura Europos in Syria, directed by Rossozef himself until 1937. Even incomplete excavation, as the author saw it, made it possible to clarify significant issues of la grande histoire, he said. One of them, which Rossozef called the big problem, the eternal problem, is the matter of a symbiosis and interpenetration of Western, that is Greek, the Western civilization and Oriental culture in the Near East, spurred by the conquest of Alexander. It is a problem, he wrote, of, quote, occidentalization, or if one prefers, of Hellenization of the Orient, and of Orientalization of conquerors from the Occident. The discovery and excavation of Dua made it possible to, to light up the shadows like the beam of a projector, the excavation illuminated almost completely one of the examples of this process, one of the civilizing cells. All in all, Rotsozev concluded that the town was increasingly orientalized even in its religious life. At the same time, here I quote it again, the upper class remained Greek in, in uh, in most outward aspects of his public and private life. Furthermore, what the author called the Semitic bourgeoisie tended to adopt Greek ways. In short, Rotsozev concluded, a new kind of humanity came into existence, neither Greek nor Oriental, but an amalgam of the two. For those who had followed Rotsozev's publications, for the previous 30 years, this article brought, brought nothing really new. Yet, the choice of a theme of Hellenization or Occidentalization revealed what was the historian's most profound and basic problem, the relationships between Europe and the Orient. This was the theme that Bickerman chose to treat in volume two of Renaissance, which appeared in 1945. As already mentioned, it was a review article of a social and economic history of the Hellenistic world. Bickerman gave his, his treatment the significant title, Europeanization of the Classical Orient, 
and the subtitle, Apropos of a book by Michel, Ros Michel Rostodzev. I, I would like to emphasize the fact this article of Bikaman has been almost entirely forgotten simply because, as it seems to me, it was published in a journal that had such a short lifespan. Indeed, Renaissance has had only three issues. The first number was published in 1943, and the second and third numbers, dated in 1944-45, publi were published as a single volume, volume in 45. Then Renaissance disappeared, along with the École Libre des Hautes Études in New York. It should be also noted that this number of the journal published articles that had been written many months previously. This must have been the case with Bickerman's review article. In an unpublished letter, for which I indebted to the kindness of Albert Baumgartner, we know that when Bickerman had sent his article to the journal, Rotsozef was in a very bad shape, for which reason he announced the article not to Rotsozef himself, but to Mrs. Rotsozef, for whom he had an enormous admiration. Bickerman's article is devoted to commentary on what the Hellenistic epoch actually is, and it holds great interest for several points of view. In the first place, Bickerman took issue with the originality of certain ideas elaborated by Droysen. The governing concept that drew him to his, his neglected period, namely that Hellenism had prepared the way to Christianity, could not have dazzled his readers with his novelty, as some of Droysen's contemporary Teutonic admirers would have it. In fact, this view had been propagated by the English deists and popularized by Voltaire, so by the time of Droysen, it was neither new nor advanced. This, this was not the only reference to Voltaire in the article. It illustrates another of Bickerman's interest, the period of the Enlightenment. Albert Baumgartner, in, in his book, recalls that in his classes at Columbia, he claimed that he was, his wide reading made him the most qualified faculty member at Columbia to teach French and territorial history of the 18th century or American history of the colonial and revolutionary eras. As I also show in a forthcoming book on the historiography of Alexander in 18th century Europe, Bickerman was one of the very few modern historians to reintroduce the Enlightenment thinkers into the long durée of commentary on the Hellenistic period. At the same time, one can feel in this reference to Voltaire his resentment of his German colleagues, whom he calls Droysen admirateur germanique. The same sentiment reappears in stronger form at the conclusion of the article where Bickerman expresses his fear that, quoting, the barbarians issuing from the Teutonic universities may yet succeed in destroying our civilization. In general, Bickerman deliberately tries 
to connect the past and the present in a sort of mirror-image relationship. He seeks to draw from the past what he himself called lessons of history. And those lessons are inscribed directly in the immediate present. To make this point, it is enough for a moment to consider his introduction. I quote. Twice in the course of history, European civilization overflowed the banks of the Occident and covered the unmoving Orient. Once in our time and once after the conquest of Alexander the Great. That is why the so-called Hellenistic period, the three centuries that passed between Alexander and the Roman Empire, today attracts special attention from historians and deserves special attention from an educated public far beyond the narrow circle of scholars. As Baumgartner recalls, the title of a course that Bickerman offered at the New School shows that he intended to take the present as a point of departure for explaining the past. In the article that I am discussing, he took the inverse approach, taking the past as a point of departure for explaining the present and also for throwing light on the future. This too is a, this is a fundamentally analogical approach, and it's why Bickerman analyzes Rotzoff's views concerning relations between Greeks and indigenous peoples in the Hellenistic world. On the one hand, as he writes, following Rotzoff, the revolts of indigenous people, endemic from 210 on, and the danger for the Ptolemies until the year 88 BC were not directed against the Greeks as such, but against the state and ruling class, against all the oppressors of the people, even including the temples of Egyptian God. At the same time, there was also a mutual aversion between them, between Greeks and indigenous people, even a hatred. After all, become judges, the indigenous reaction is quite natural. And yet, and he emphasizes this point, the new Asiatic overlords, Parthians, Arameans, Arabs, and so on, displayed no animosity toward European civilization. Rather, they continued the work of the European conquerors. How is such situation to be explained? To help his readers understand this hellenistic paradox, he offers another analogy with the present in this form. Compare the results of the modern Europeanization of the Orient. We are detested from Casablanca to Canton the Oriental people dream only of getting rid of our civilization after borrowing from us the technology and arts of war. How then to explain the attraction of Hellenism, this persistence of Europeanization in the ancient Orient where even the Buddha is Hellenized? Following Rotsodzev, Bikaman gives the following explanation. 
All immigrants were welcome, all alike, without distinction by origin. Whether they were Athenians or Boeotian or Thracian or Persian or Jews, all these Hellenized foreigners were regarded as Hellenes, and all these Hellenes came in time to form a Greek civilization of the Orient that was common to the entire Hellenistic world, a Koine. A common European front stood against a diversity of indigenous civilization. On this point, again, Bikerman drew an analogy with the 20th century world of the European colony. Imagine, imagine what it would be like if a Frenchman coming to India could become governor of Madras and an Englishman could be a judge in Algiers. Then you will grasp, grasp the importance of this aspect of the Europeanization of the ancient Orient. A second answer was the mentality of a Greek colonist was very different from that of the colonists of classical Greece. For now, they adapted to the lands where they settled. Here again, Bickerman has recourse to analogy. In this way, a new Greece took form in the Orient, just as English colonists in America, bringing with them the rights and principles of the British Constitution, founded a New England across the sea. This is a second aspect of Hellenization. It was no longer a matter of passing visitors with thought of nothing but getting rich and returning home, as it had been when one Greek was a physician of a Persian court or another had been a missionary in the service of Nebuchadnezzar. These were no longer Europeans of Europe, but Europeans of Asia. Born and raised on Oriental soil, it was these who Hellenized the Orient. The result of this twofold process of Hellenization and Orientalization under the aegis of royal policy was that the indigenous masses, deprived of their leaders, considered themselves to be Hellenes because they were accepted as such by the European colonists. From this finding, taken in part from the work of Rosadzev, Bickerman drew the following conclusion. This explains the remarkable fact that when barbarism began to overwhelm ancient civilization, Orientals were among the most ardent defenders of Hellenism. No one protected the gods of Olympus better than Porphyry, whose real name was Malchus, meaning king in Phoenician. And the last Greek poet in Byzantine Egypt was a cult. In this interpretation of intercultural relationships in the Hellenistic world seems today to be somewhat too optimistic. It is because for Bickerman, it was intertwined with the history of his own times. He sought to draw from Hellenistic history a hope for a future that could still have appeared very grim for a Jew born in the Ukraine and exiled to New York. Bickerman expresses in this way. 
Do we dare to hope that even if the barbarians coming out of the Teutonic universities succeed in destroying our civilization, humanitarian ideals will be protected by a Vietnamese and the memory of Racine will be preserved in Tombouctou. I do not know, but I must not forget that the first colonial governor to rally to the cause of the Gaulle was a black Frenchman. Bickerman was not French himself, but he was writing in the house organ of an institution whose members, for the most part, were supporters of the free France of General de Gaulle. And hence he took his, his example from the French colonial empire. He alluded to the Governor General of Congo from 1938 on, Félix Eboué, a Frenchman born in Guyana, who joined de Gaulle's moment on June 10, 10, 18, uh, 1940. One can see in this example why Bickerman had written at the beginning of the article, as we have seen, that the Hellenistic period deserves special attention today from historians and deserves special attention from an, an educated people, public, far beyond the narrow circle of scholars. As understood by Rostozef and Bikaman, the colonial past of Greece was a sort of mirror of the colonial present of Europe. Just as Hellenized indigenous elite, according to Bikaman, had preserved and protected Hellenism, in the same way the Europeanized colonial elite, he hoped, would prevent the disappearance of European civilization, even if the barbarians coming out of the Teutonic universities succeed in destroying that civilization in its original home. By way of concluding this reflection on Bikaman, I will consider thoughts expressed a few years later, few years later by the well-known French orientalist René Grousset. During the very period when European domination was being challenged, sometimes with armed struggle by revolutionary movements, René Grousset repeatedly raised questions about the immediate future of the colonial powers. In 1949, he published a grand scientific work named Figure de Proue, from Alexander the Great to the Grand Mogul. One chapter of it is devoted to Alexander and the transformation of the ancient world. The author's meditation on the lessons of Hellenistic history is comparable to Bickerman's in one way, and entirely different in another way. Between the times of Bickerman's article in Renaissance, but 1945, but probably written in 44 or 43, and Grosset's book, 19, 1949, The World Had Changed. Germany and Japan had been defeated. India became independent on August 1547. In the same year, the People, People's Liberation Army were victorious in China. Indochina was in revolt against the French, and other insurrections have been brutally crushed in Madagascar and Algeria. The revolt against European domination 
had become an undeniable reality, one that Grousset had foretold in 1924 in the overbook Le Réveil de l'Asie, The Awakening of Asia. The subtitle, L'Imperialisme Britannique et la Révolte des Peuples, British Imperialism and the Revolt of the Peoples, shows Grousset's hostile attitude toward forms of imperialism that could be considered Anglo-Saxon. When 25 years later, Grousset included French imperialism in his analysis as well. He had read the Institution de Célucide and he cited it. He too drew an analogy between the linguistic world and the contemporary, contemporary world, but he came to a conclusion opposite to Bickerman's, a far more, far more pessimistic outlook. Precisely because it represents the first wholesale colonization undertaken by a great empire, the depressing spectacle of the Hellenistic period reminds us that, in the end, every colonization exhausts its potential and that sooner or later, and for the philosopher centuries cast matter, sooner or later the colonized territory, after profiting very much from the efforts of the colonizers, finds itself back in the same situation as before, with its spirit unaltered. He was convinced that the result of the Macedonian conquest was not so much the analyzation of the Orient as the orientalization of Venice's. Because, as he saw it, the emotional, that is the Orient, is propagated infinitely more quickly that, than the rational, the Greece. The idea that Grousset formulated in this way had already become a received opinion. I need only quote Franz Cumont, the very first excavator at Dura Europos. Quote, the colonies, Greek colonies, were European islands lost in the Asiatic Ocean. The immigrants were never very numerous and they had to struggle to protect, them, sorry, protect themselves against the danger of being submerged by the flood of aliens who surrounded them. This trope, borrowed from Roman authors, had great contemporary resonance and it continues to resonate in our day. One can only be struck by the very frequent recurrence of the fear of interbreeding, in other words, by the fear expressed express again and again that in the end, Hellenization was nothing but an illusion, that the conquerors will be corrupted by Oriental influence and then, then submerged by their former subjects. Let me return to Grousset. At the distance of only a few years, his disillusion statement seems to provide a negative answer to the question that Bickerman posed with the most fragile of hopes in the face of a risk that the very basis of European civilization might disappear utterly under Nazi barbarism. The editorial introduction to Renaissance volume uh, concluded, included this invocation. 
However violent the assault on liberty may now be, we cannot believe that we are merely standing by as powerless witnesses to the twilight of civilization and that an exhausted world is prepared to accept as an outcome of the war authoritarian regime and more or less veiled dictatorship. Reading these lines now, one cannot help being gripped by profound retrospective emotion. That is true also of Bickerman's article. The author tries to find reassurance about the present, above all about the outcome of the war. To do so, he draws on his knowledge of an epoch that was distant in time but close at hand by reason of analogy with the circumstances in which the author, his friends, and colleagues at the Colib de Haute-Zétude and many others were immersed. When we try to locate Bickerman's analysis in the standing complementary of the topics of relation between Greeks and indigenous people of the Hellenistic world, how can we not suppose that his view of the Hellenistic world was over-determined by, by his own situation and by his own feelings about the present that he tried to elucidate a little desperately by means of past that he construes as a mirror image. For example, when he expressed the hope that someone in Tombouctou will preserve the memory of Racine, it is easy to suppose, I think, that we are, he was thinking of Plutarch's famous phrase on the scope of Alexander's civilizing mission. When Alexander undertook to civilize Asia, people would read Homer there, the children of Persians, of Sergians, and Jedrosians would declare the tragedies of Euripides and Sophocles. And yet, relying on a vision of a civilizing conqueror as ideological, ideologically charged as Plutarch's vision was, did that not also entail being misled into an overly optimistic analysis of relation between European colonists and colonized people, whether in the Hellenistic world or in the contemporary world. In short, the emotional burden, it was my last phrase, the emotional burden of Bickerman's language remains intact today. But now, as much as in that time, analogy proves to be a source of both illusion and disillusion. Thank you very much. How do you say uh, archaeology of knowledge that's so foundational for Hellenistic history and for many other things? Will you take a couple of questions? If Why not? You're captured, if any. Questions or comments? Let me remind you before we have time for a couple of questions um, that tomorrow we have a, a superstar, all-star cast. John Collins from Yale Divinity School, Eckhart Fromm from Yale Near Eastern Language and Civilization Department, Mark Guy Jacks from Princeton Classics, uh, Matt Stoper from the University of Chicago Oriental Institute, um, and Yale Stope, um, one of our own from Yale Classics. 
a three-hour roundtable discussion, questions, comments, remarks, and so on um, on the third floor here tomorrow morning, okay? So with that reminder, let me open the floor to a couple of questions or comments. Yes? spectacle of, of uh, Hellenism. It was only, well, let me just say, to yeah. refer to the whole Hellenistic period as a depressing spectacle. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, depressing. Yes, because, because uh, depressing because uh, he was thinking of a contemporary world at the same time. And for him, uh, uh, Hellenism was a real disaster, but because in the end, it was not uh, Hellenization of Asia, but Asiatization of Europe. So it, in, in his view, it is, it is a very depressing spectacle to see the, 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 the disaster of European civilization. That's that, that what, what his thought. You, you hinted at the end um, that a lot of what you were saying might be relevant background to studying um, the Hellenistic world now. And I wondered if you could say a little about what your own studies of Alexander, how they are affected by your own scholarly experience or by the experience of France vis-a-vis um, -vis the Eastern world in the last, the, or the Arabic world in the last 10 years or so. Um, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I, I, how to say? Alexander's studies, necessary, uh, has been affected by postcolonial studies. It is part of postcolonial studies, and uh, uh, no, yes, it's true. But I come back. The history of Alexander has always been affected since the very beginnings of the history of Alexander by European history. And Alexander has always been considered as a part of European history and considered as the first conqueror, the first, the first European to, to drive a uh, victorious army to Asia. And so from the beginning, uh, the history of Alexander is completely, 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 what, I don't know, it's uh, far, uh, completely embedded in our uh, back, own background of European history since the modern time. So uh, what is very clear now, that uh, to continue on this, on this on this track of Europe of Alexander history uh, is a non-issue, uh, non-exit. So we have to change completely our 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 view of Alexander history. Uh, the history of Alexander is, uh, I think, in the process of to be changed uh, very deeply. 
Why? Because Alexander history is a crossroads or a crossing of two uh, fields who have been completely changed and modified for the past 30 years. I mean, the history of the Achaemenid Empire and the history of Macedonia. 30 years ago, we, we did not know about, about almost nothing about Macedonia, apart from the information from classical text, so nothing. Now, for 30 years, archaeology, epigraphy, numismatic, had completely changed the history of Macedonia, and we know now what, what was, were Macedonians at the epoch of Alexander the Great. And now, for over 30 past years, or 40 or 50, I don't know, uh, the field of Achaemenid history has been completely changed. So uh, we, we, we know now where, what was this empire that he conquered. And so we have now at our disposal a mass of documentation, of reflection. We, and we can hope for the future that the history of Alexander would become a real task of a real historian, what is not exactly today. This is more uh, biographical on Bickerman than it is on Alexander, but um, in 45, the other members of the Ecole Libre went back to France and Belgium. Um, some emigre scholars and artists remained in America as Americans. Um, some found the outcome of the war to be surprising and disappointing in ways that that uh, invocation from Renaissance gives it a certain sense of irony. Mm. Um, what about Bickerman? Bickerman stayed. Do we know anything about whether he thought of going either to France or to Germany or whether his political situation was in some way more difficult than others? Well, apparently he had never the desire nor hope to get back to, to, get back to Europe. He was very pleased to, to be in the, in the U.S. And uh, so he, he tried to get a position in order to, to be permanent resident in, uh, in the States. So it took, it, uh, it took him uh, six years before getting this position in Columbia. So he got several positions uh, in New York, in the Jewish seminary, and uh, in California somewhere, I don't know exactly where. Uh, and he, so he got this position in Columbia. He never, he never, so when he returned somewhere, he returned to the country he, never, he has never, he never seen, I mean Israel. Yeah. He, after his retirement, he, he, get back, he got back to Israel and he died in Jerusalem in 81. So he never thought of going back to, to France, Germany certainly not, and certainly not to Russia. Uh, it was different from, I, I mean, it was a different, uh, different uh, path from Rosodzev, because Rosodzev has been hoping for years to get back to Russia. He was very, very attached to his, uh, to his homeland, and uh, after a while he, he understood that it was not possible. So he accepted to get to get to to the to Madison, Wisconsin. 
where he was very pleased, apparently, according to uh, a paper that uh, Stock you, you gave me for, for reading. An Italian scholar by the name of Lucio Russo has written a book now in its third Italian edition uh, saying that the first scientific revolution, very much like the one in Europe a couple of thousand years later, occurred in uh, the Hellenistic world, centered on Alexandria, and was destroyed following the Roman annihilation of Carthage. And, uh, Corinth, uh, excuse me, uh, Carthage and Corinth. And I wonder if this has had a, a true scientific revolution based both on mathematics and on experimental data, very much like the modern one. And his thesis is, uh, well, I won't go into all those details. The question is, has that had any effect on the academic world yet? My impression is the answer is no, but I you would know better. I didn't get the question. I did not get exactly the question. <laughs> well, um, and more simply, have you ever heard of Lucio Russo? Lucio Russo, R-U-S-S-O. Russo, an Italian scholar, a mathematician, and a philologist. Never heard, I'm sorry. That answers the question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, with that note, let us thank uh, our speaker. Finally, it worked. Finally, it worked. Oui, yes. <laughs>